This morning we're going to be talking about making future plans. And what a better day than Family Sunday when we talk about future planning because for most of us that future planning really kicks in when we begin to start a family, right? We begin dating or we get engaged, we have kids. And it doesn't stop, you know, then there's planning for how we're going to pay this bill or that bill. How are we going to buy a house? Where are we going to retire? What are we going to do with our lives? When am I going to grow up? I haven't yet, but I'm working on it. But making future plans is something that, for most of us, we spend a lot of time doing. And unfortunately, James has to warn the early church and also us that there's a way to make future plans that is sinful right? There's a way to make future plans that is sinful, which is a kind of a big deal because we could easily be living in unrepentant sin if we're not careful. And this morning, I want to talk about how we can make future plans in a way that glorifies God and that is in the will of God. I want to start reading a poem to you. It says this, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, And sorry, I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood. And I looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as justice fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though, as for the passing there, had warned them both really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black, Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Robert Frost, 1916. It's been a minute, right? But the message still rings true. But I want to bolster that with Scripture because, you know, as truthful as that statement is, as intriguing and engaging it is, Jesus' words are always a little bit better. Jesus said something similar in Matthew seven thirteen through 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. See, there's this clear view that there are two basic paths you can go down in life. Now, everybody here would say, well, my path's kind of unique. Nobody's walked in my shoes, lived my life, walked down my road. I'll concede that point, but there's a greater point to be made here. There's either this narrow path, this narrow road with a narrow gate that leads to eternal life, and there's this very broad road and broad gate that leads to destruction. And this morning, as we think through James, I've seen so many of these diverging roads throughout James. If we think very back to the beginning of the series when we talked about joyful suffering. See, there's joyful suffering or there's despairing suffering. Or there's doers of the word or there's merely listeners of the word. There's the humble and there's the proud. There's a living faith and a dead faith. There's a pure religion and a defiled religion. There's a life-giving tongue and a deadly tongue. There's godly wisdom and there's demonic wisdom. There are selfless, affirming relationships like we talked about last week or selfish, destructive relationships. 
See, there's always two paths, and each day we're presented with many opportunities to choose at the crossroads, the diverging roads. Which road are we going to take? Are we going to take the path that most people follow, or are we going to go against the grain? Are we going to go down the road that may be a little bit scarier because it looks like people haven't walked here in a while, and I don't know what's along that road. There's not really a map routed out here. Right? I don't have a clear vision of where this road leads other than to eternity, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. And I have to trust along that road. You know, one thing that a lot of us struggle to do is trust, right? Because we like to be in control. Because control makes me feel good. Right? Nobody likes to be in control. You guys are awesome. But control makes us feel good, right? It makes us feel safe and secure and stable. But the truth is, underneath all that, control doesn't exist for us. Because we serve a God who is sovereign, amen? And that means God is in control. And I'm kind of glad that's the case, because God is more capable of being in control. But what that means for me is I have to give up the facade of control and embrace this idea that I have a choice at every diverging road to choose whether or not I'm going to take one step closer to the kingdom of heaven or one step away from it. And that's a big responsibility this morning. So as we come to our text, I want you to think about this in the context of these two different roads. There's a a way to make plans for the future that takes you further and further away from God. And there's a way that helps you walk and step with the Spirit in the will of God. Let's read James 4, 13 through 17. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. Let's just finish this again. You should say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live. Hey, if it's the Lord's will, I'll live. Whose will is it if I live? The Lord's will. Do we think like that? Let's start there. The second one is, and do this or that. So let's take it a step further. God is determining whether or not I live, and then God should be determining what I do. Make sense? That's what scripture is teaching here. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. You making plans outside of that is a boast, and it's arrogance because you don't know whether or not you're going to be here tomorrow. You don't know what God has called you to do. And this morning, we're going to talk about how do I make plans in a way that glorifies God. And I think the base question for that is going to be, how do I move from making future plans for myself to, if the Lord wills, right? Because that's really the question. That's the question that comes out in this text. How do I get from where I'm at to if the Lord wills? Because we live in a culture that prizes attributes like preparation, production, planning, efficiency, effectiveness. Any of these words ring true to you? And none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but I would propose that those things can become idols. That planning too much can get in the way of your relationship with God. That being overprepared can come at the expense of opportunities in the moment to serve God. 
That efficiency can't always be measured by what is seen, but rather what is unseen. And so we don't know whether or not we're being efficient or effective in the church because the church is about making disciples, and discipleship isn't always something that's easily visual from the outside. It's not about numbers. It's about maturity. It's about time. God has a progress for everybody. We're going to look at that this morning. So the text isn't saying making future plans is a sin in and of itself. It states that doing so without God's direction is a sin because it is arrogant and boastful. And the ultimate issue is that God has planned a plan for our lives, and we're not taking it into account. And we're going to look at that this morning, but I want to start by looking at four people, two out of the Old Testament, two out of the New Testament, who we consider, based on Scripture, to have walked by faith. I want to look at their lives. What does it look like to be a disciple of God? What does it look like to follow God? Because I think in our culture, we have a pretty skewed understanding of that based on the cultural influence we have of comfort. A future. I mean, when I think of the idea of retirement in and of itself, I think, where is that in Scripture? I mean, the curse was Adam was going to work until what? So we've added that in. Well, it's okay. I'm not saying anything against retirement, but we can never retire from doing the work God has prepared in advance for us to do. So let's look at these guys in Scripture and what their lives looked like. And we're going to start with Abram, because at this point in the story, he's not Abraham yet. He's Abram. And Genesis 12, 1 through 4. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And you're going to see this theme. God commanded He informed him of the cost of discipleship. You're going to leave everything. He says, look, you're going to go from your country, your people, and your father's household. You're going to walk away from everything. He informed him of the cost. He promised him a blessing, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. He gave him a promise. If you follow me, this is what the result is going to be. And ultimately, we know Abram what? He obeyed God. Next, we have Noah and the ark. Genesis 6, 13 through 14, verse 18 and verse 22. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood and make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. But I will establish with you my covenant, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Noah did everything just as God commanded. Again, we see what? God commands him to make an ark, informed him of the cost. Everything you know right now is going to be gone at the end of this. I'm destroying everything. And all that's going to be left is you and your family. You're going to start a new world all by yourself in an unfamiliar place. That's the cost. And how about the cost of building the ark, which took Noah a long time? But I will establish with you a covenant, the promise that God makes, right? And we know the rainbow is a sign of that covenant, right? That God would look at that and never flood the earth again. And you know what Noah does in verse 22? 
everything just as God commanded him. He obeyed. All right, let's move to the New Testament. Peter's death. John 21, 17 through 19. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? So you guys know this story. Peter and Jesus are having a talk post-resurrection. And and Jesus is asking him, this is the third time he asks him, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him again, follow me. Jesus commanded, he said what? Feed my sheep and follow me. He informed him of the cost. He said, you used to be able to do whatever you wanted with your life, but that's changed. And at some point, somebody's even going to lead you to where you don't want to go. And what's the promise of a blessing? Jesus indicated the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. We're all going to die. What a blessing is it to know that by dying in this way, God will be glorified in my death. That's the promise of a blessing. He is being blessed by the opportunity to die in a way that will glorify God in heaven. Now, we may not think of that that way, but that is what Jesus says because it's the truth. Because our lives belong to him. And we know that Peter obeyed. Let's look at Paul's suffering, Acts 9, 13 through 16, and verse 20. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man, referring to Saul, and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings, and to, the peop- and to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. After all this happens, Ananias obeys. Verse 20, after he's baptized, it says, At once he, being Saul, began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. We see the same thing. God commands Ananias and Paul. Promises a blessing. What's the blessing here? You're going to be an instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and all their kings and the people of Israel. What a blessing it is that God chose me to be his instrument and humility to recognize my unworthiness, just like Isaiah who says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, right? You don't think Saul understood that when he got blinded and he says, who are you, Lord? He got it. And so when God blesses him by giving him this opportunity, this second chance to go out and do what he had prepared in advance for him to do, he knows it's a blessing. He informed him of the cost. I will show you how much he must suffer for my name. See, Paul's life was defined by suffering. And he says, I consider my light and momentary troubles nothing. Now, if any of us lived like Paul lived, I don't think we would talk about our troubles as light and momentary, right? 
being shipwrecked, being stoned and left for dead, traveling around the world, having issues with his health, being cast out, being the only person at times who felt like you were doing this for God, yet he considered those troubles light and momentary. How do we get there? How do we get there? So I would propose you this. None of these men's future plans had originally involved what God had called them to. Meaning in their minds, I would propose that none of them thought that God was going to call them to this specific life. Abram was asked to leave all he knew based on God's word that something good would come of it. And he did. Noah was asked to save humanity by building an ark that would take him a hundred years based on God's word. A flood was coming. And he did. Peter was asked to lead the early church as the rock and be led to his own gruesome death for her sake based on Jesus' word that the kingdom had come and it was a spiritual one, not an earthly one. And he did. Paul was asked to renounce all he knew and go to the Gentiles and suffer for Jesus' name based on Jesus' word that the promise of eternal life was for all people, not just the Jews. These are huge, life-altering things that God asked of these men, and each and every one of them obeyed. They weren't perfect. They made mistakes, but they obeyed, and they allowed God's will to be the driving force in their life. And today, I want to challenge us to get to where they were at. See, these men chose the road less traveled by their obedience to God's command, and they lived out this phrase, if the Lord will. If the Lord wills. We say that, but do we mean it? Do we mean it? So the question is this morning is, how do I get from making my own plans to if the Lord wills it, it'll happen? To rest in that. In Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve God's will. We can know what God's will is. His will is knowable, but our mind needs to be changed. So we enter those waters of baptism, like happened this morning. The old man is crucified, it says, and buried in death, and we come out a new creation in Christ. And we are no longer sinners by nature, but we are saints by the grace of God who've been given a new spirit, a regenerated spirit, a new heart according to the promise in Ezekiel, and the indwelling of God's spirit. We are different than we were before. Something supernatural happens by faith. But you know what doesn't change? Our mind. And we think we're the person we were before. And so Paul hits this right on the head when he says, you do not be conformed any longer by the patterns of this world. Be transformed. That word transformed here is metamorphosis. This idea of you, become, you go from being a caterpillar to a butterfly. And the renewing here is the word renovate, to gut out and completely remake. So this morning, I want us to learn how Scripture instructs us to do this planning for the future in a way that honors God by renewing our mind in three ways, okay? The first way is perspective. Raise your hand without shame if you're a pessimist. Okay? Now raise your hand without pride if you're an optimist. Raise your hand if you vary between hours which one you are, right? It's about perspective, right? If I have the glass half full or half empty, some people will say, well, I'm just pragmatic, or I'm practical, I'm a realist. And maybe that's true. But it's about perspective. What window, what lens are we looking at the world around us through, right? 
And in Scripture, there's two clear lenses that we can look through. The lens of the worldly or the lens that is eternal, right? So there's a worldly lens and the eternal lens. So I'm just going to give you a couple of scriptures on each to give you kind of a basic understanding of how they look different. First Peter 4, 2 through 4 says this, As a result, they do not live the rest of their lives, earthly lives, for human evil desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join with them in their reckless and wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So one of, the, one of the ways we know that our perspective is worldly is if we're living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, carousing, detestable idolatry, reckless lives, and wild lives. Because believers all at one time lived in that way. And they've been moved out. And he says, you've done that long enough. Now it's time to have a different perspective. Or 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, but you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. You see, there's this definition of a worldly person or a person who lives by the Spirit. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Well, I'm just being a person. I'm just a person. I'm just a human being. Look, anything that's natural to the state of being a human is sin. You know that, right? The natural state of humanity is sin. The natural state of the flesh is sin because it pursues only that which glorifies and satisfies the flesh. Only things of the Spirit can lead to eternal life and to the glorification of God. When he says, are you not acting like mere humans, that is an insult. Because we're not mere humans if we're in Christ. We are God's chosen people. We are children of God. We are holy, without stain or blemish, set apart, priests. We are different. We are not mere humans. So when there's jealousy and quarreling, In our lives, when jealousy and quarreling define our life, we are looking at it from a worldly perspective. Or James 4.4 from last week. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. It's that simple. When you align yourself with the world and what the world preaches and what the world wants and what the world strives for, you become God's enemy. And nothing will stand in the way of God. The other side is eternal. Colossians 3.2. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Set it. My Bible's setting right here. Where does your mind rest throughout the day? On the earthly things that take up our mind like uh, Jesus warns against when he says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour into your life? When he's talking about seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added, he says, Why do you worry? Do not the birds eat even though they don't sow? Why are you worried about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? Because you can't do anything by worrying about it. You're not in control. That's his warning to us. Not even his warning, his, I'd say his like comfort to us. God's going to take care of it. So when we set our mind on things above, on God and on his kingdom and not earthly things, the earthly things will be already taken care of. But most of us have our mindset on earthly things. 
Or 2 Corinthians 4.18, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I'm looking at something that isn't visible. And who is that? Hebrews 12.2 says, Fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, or in another translation, the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who wrote the book on faith and lived it out perfectly. Are we fixing our eyes on Jesus, who we can't see, but we know by faith is there? Because he's the only thing that's going to last. Everything you're looking at right now will not be here according to Paul and Scripture. It's going to disappear. It's not real in the sense that it has a lasting repercussion. Paul sums this up in Romans 8.5. He says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, and those who live according with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. It's really easy today. Do you want to know where you're at? What do you desire? Do you desire the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of the flesh? So once we have the right perspective, we can talk about ownership, right? Do you guys know that we, we're owned today? That somebody owns you today. We're going to look at the two owners your two masters, if I may, in Romans. Romans 6, 16b through 17 says, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, moving on to verse 18, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. So, you know, one thing we don't do a good job in the church of is preaching our slavery. Right? We were once enslaved to sin. Nobody was moving around like a free agent like they thought they were. Those people are people who are enslaved to sin, and their flesh guides their every decision. But God has set us free from that burden, but he's enslaved us then with what? righteousness, and we become slaves of God. God is our master. That's what we do when we call, what? We confess Christ as what? Lord. That's what that means. Lord, you are my Lord and my master. You now own me. You know why you own me? Because you purchased me at a cost. Because the debt for my slavery was too much for me to ever be able to purchase on my own. You stepped in and ransomed me at the cost of your blood. You own me. You don't own yourself. And if you think you do, you're living in sin. Either Jesus owns you or you're owned by sin. You don't make decisions independent of those two things. That's sin. And that recognition, that not understanding, that having a mind that doesn't get that leads to death. God owns us if we're in Christ. Paul sums it up like this in Romans 8, 12 through 14. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Who is leading you? Once you have the right perspective, you have to recognize who holds the reins to your life. Is it Jesus or is it sin? It's that simple. 
Either you have a worldly perspective that allows sin to rule, or you have an eternal perspective that recognizes that God's at the helm because you submitted your life to him by faith in Christ. The last part of this is a mission. We're either on a mission for ourselves and our own selfish gain, or in the famous words of the Blues Brothers, we're on a mission for God, right? Come on, you guys haven't seen the Blues Brothers? We're on a mission for God, right? And we would all like to say we're on a mission for God, but most of us don't live in a way where our plans are lining up with that mission. This morning, James in 4, 2 through 3 says this about our mission for ourselves. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, but when you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. You're on a mission for yourself. Why do you want that bigger house? Why do you want that better job? Why do you want that nicer car? Why do you want your kids to go to college? Why do you want stability? Why do you want comfort? Why do you want retirement? Is it for the glory of God or for yourself? Most of what we're driven by, if we're honest in plan making, is for my comfort in my life, independent of who God is. Because when I look at scripture, most of the people that pursued God weren't really comfortable here on earth because their citizenship wasn't here. They're aliens in a foreign land. They weren't attached to this world, which is temporary. What do you want a mission for? What are you striving and spending your days for? Are you toiling and laboring for? And James 4.13, he says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city and spend a year there, carry on and make money. That sounds like the American way. Or in Romans, he sums it up like this. Romans 1, 18, 21 through 23 and 25. I abridge this for you. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness by the, and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks. They claimed to be wise and they exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served. This is huge. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. What do you worship and serve? What drives you out of bed in the morning? Is it the creator of the universe? Because if it is, then you're going to ask him every day, where am I going? Because you know, and I don't. Because you have a plan, and I don't. Because you purchased me, and I couldn't. What are you pursuing? If you're on a mission for God, it's going to look a little like this. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us before he created anything. In love, he predestined us for adoption as to sonship through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and his will. His pleasure, his will, not ours. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may, that you may, Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All this is from God who, gave, who reconciled himself 
through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you then, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see, God's got big plans for your life, and your plans are getting in the way of God's big plans if your future planning isn't premised on the basic fact that I'm looking for the eternal that God owns me, and that I'm on his missionary. I'm his missionary, not my own. If we don't have those three things in alignment, we are missing out on being the next Abraham, on being the next Peter, by being the next Paul. We can complain all we want about how watered down the church is, or we could start obeying God and simply doing and pursuing what God tells us to do and pursue in our daily lives. Each one of us is accountable for it. It's not just for the paid staff or the elders or the deacons. Everyone has been made a minister of the gospel of reconciliation if you've accepted the grace of Jesus Christ in your life. And you are without excuse if you will accept the gift of grace and not let it transform you. And maybe you're not there. Maybe you think you're there and you're not there and we can talk about it. Because I believe the natural byproduct of being a disciple is making disciples. Anything you love, you're going to tell me about. I don't have to tell you to tell me about it. So maybe we need to redefine where we're at in our walk. Paul sums it up in this, and then I'll get to the closing. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. If you love me, you obey my commands. That kind of love. And who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Is that you today? Is that me? God has a plan. God has big plans for your life. Jesus died so that you could carry out those plans, and God's even equipped his people to do it on his strength, not our own strength. Amen? I mean, this is exciting news this morning if we're serious about making future plans that say this, if the Lord wills it, maybe I need to redefine what future should look like. So this morning, I have three action points, and I'm going to just go through it briefly, and I'll post it on the Internet so you can look at it. I want you to identify which perspective you tend to walk in daily. You guys can come up while we're getting to this. Worldly eternal, and commit to praying that God's Spirit will renew your mind daily so that you can pursue a more eternal perspective. Two, you identify who owns you more often, sin or God, and commit to praying that God's Spirit will renew your mind daily, so that you can be fully owned by God in all that you pursue. Three, identify whose mission you're on, your own or God's. Commit to praying that God's Spirit will renew your mind daily so that you can pursue His will for your life and not your own. In closing, I'd say this. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that's made all the difference. Which road will you choose today? The narrow or the wide, the well-traveled or the less traveled? The psalmist says it like this in Psalm 37, 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. And he, the Lord, delights in his way. Your steps have been established. You don't have to do the work of deciding what they are. You have to do the work of listening to the voice of God and pursuing the will of God. And God will lay out before you each step. Abram didn't know where he was going, but he went. And every step of the way, he depended on God. That's what faith actually looks like. 
when it comes to making future plans. And sometimes I feel we miss that mark. And I'm as guilty as anybody of it. But we need to repent so that we can be the people God has called us to be. If we want to, if we want to move in the United States, if we want the church to grow, if we want the church to be what it's supposed to be, then we have to be the people God has called us to be instead of being comfortable with being the people we pretend to be. And I'm speaking to myself as much as anybody. We were purchased at a cost for a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God through the making of disciples. God has plotted out the course of your life. And it's a good life. Because God can only do good things. And it may not seem that way to those who are outside of Christ. But for those of us who know and have a relationship with God, we know that God is good. And that all he does is good, even when it doesn't look good. Even when it doesn't feel good, it's good because God will never leave us and never forsake us. There's nothing that can take us out of God's hands. This morning, if you need that security that comes with being in Christ, if you need to repent, come forward. When we confess our sins to one another, we can begin the healing process because the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. If you've never put Christ on in baptism before, if you've never surrendered to God, say, Lord, Lord, have your way with me. I'm tired of being run by sin. I want you to run my life because the steps of man are established by the Lord and he delights in them. Come forward as well.